Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me is commissioning editor extraordinaire, Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, I... I <laughs> why are you laughing? That was the straightest intro I've ever done. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm not feeling very well today. I'm sorry. You I can't imagine you genuinely want to discuss that further, though. I mean, I wish you well. But... Yeah, I've got my Lemsip. <laughs> you don't like Lemsips, though, do you? I don't like Lemsips. Why no. not? I don't imagine very many people do. I like them. I Although you them... tell me now that there are all these exotic flavours. I'm currently drinking an apple and cinnamon <laughs> flavoured Lemsip. Yeah. Open to sponsorship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, if you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions, type pod one in the offer code section. You can get six issues for £6. Coming up on the show this week... Is it possible to get bored of Bart? There is a question for you. And here's another. Just what accounts for the prolonged popularity and relevance of this French thinker? It cannot just be the aftershocks of that pretentious surge in continental theorising that took all the joy out of studying English literature and reading books for the pleasure of it. Can it? Samuel Earle will be here to make the case for the ongoing life of this author. See what I did there? Life of this, yeah. Feminist writing perhaps has never been more important, but that doesn't mean it's always any good. Charlotte Shane has read a number of books by titans of the genre and confesses disappointment at what is being produced. What makes good feminist prose and what does the bad stuff look like? She will tell us more. To write about feminism has often meant writing against the grain, the structural skew towards masculine power structures, the panic response of many powerful men to notions of equality, mean that voices advocating women's rights are often muffled or ignored, but they are at least getting louder. Charlotte Shane, however, has reviewed books by Jill Filipovich, Laurie Penny, Camille Paglia and Rebecca Solnit and is stern in her judgment of their quality. Today's mainstream feminism, she says, is not nearly as rigorous, comprehensive or useful as the moment demands. We've narrowed the scope of public feminism to a pinprick, rehashing yet another Lena Dunham controversy when we should have been developing and promoting reforms that encompass systems of exploitation not defined by gender alone. Had Hillary Clinton become president, there could have been a sense of misplaced complacency. But with Trump, the issues around inequality are more pressing than ever. 
who is leading the charge in response? Charlotte Shane joins Thea and me now. Hi, hi, Charlotte. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, too, for having me. Um, you talk in the beginning of the piece about the high stakes around feminism in the current climate. Perhaps we might start there. Why are the stakes so high? What are the stakes at the moment? Well, as many others have pointed out, in the United States, at least after the election, there was a sense of tremendous alarm and panic. But much of what Trump represents and what the Republican Party, in fact, represents, although they sometimes try to distance themselves from Trump, are these really horrific like human rights abuses, basically, that have been routine in the United States for quite a long time. But because of Trump's many other qualities, a lot of people finally sort of woke up to the larger state of things. And of course, he's also emboldened some of our worst <laughs> citizens to... Uh, up the up their games, um, you know, as with Charlottesville. So do you, do, you, do, you, do you think, I mean, it's an interesting point that, that has Trump allowed the problems within society to be better explored or has he made them worse or perhaps both of those things? Trump is a symptom. He, he alone is not the problem. So it would actually be a very superficial, albeit desirable sort of band-aid to say impeach him. Um, that, that really doesn't address a lot of the other problems we're facing and I mean everyone should be facing as kind of like moral or ethical agents um, and I, some of the ones I list in the article are like you know our our prison industrial complex is, is so out of control um, that our incarceration rates are appalling and uh, this is something that does affect women um, women are absolutely incarcerated and they're it just throws their families into chaos um, women's rights conversations in the United States for a long time have centered very prominently on access to business opportunities, yeah. um, <laughs> CEO positions, and um, and also reproductive rights. However, even then, it's usually very, very limited, which it's almost always kind of centered around abortion, which I too feel very passionately about. So it's, I'm not dismissing that in any way. You refer to a sort of middle class feminism, which I think is really interesting. That, and I was reading a book by Renée Edo Lodge, which is about race, but she says in it that feminism will have won when we have ended poverty. Is the argument you're making that feminist, I suppose, targets are too small when there's so many larger targets available? Yeah, I've, I read Renny's book too, and I really enjoyed it a lot. Feminism has become at least mainstream feminism, which also goes by other names like white feminism, neoliberal feminism. Um, as people begin to kind of talk about its failings more, uh, has has kind of siloed itself in a way from these other uh, critiques of the larger systems of oppression at work. So, for instance, you get women who have no problem explaining why they think sex work is bad, which is that it's exploitative and, you know, that it's particularly demanding and that people do it out of desperation. Um, but they have a very hard time recognizing that that applies to many more forms of work and perhaps even all work. People are, are coerced into doing it, usually. Not writing book reviews, obviously. That's something we want to do <laughs> just for our spirits. But um, but that there are many forms of work that people turn to out of desperation, etc. But a lot of the most prominent voices are not anti-capitalist. So they have a very hard time um, turning their observations into something a little larger. Uh, there was a book published by uh, an American, I think she's kind of an expat, actually, she might live in Germany, um, Jessica Crispin this year, 
called something like why why I am no longer a feminist or why I'm not a feminist. And that book was sort of very much a screed, but it voiced some of these same problems, which I think were, were already brewing well before the election. But I think that in the wake of the election, it's been brought to a head by, for instance, how many women are still kind of obsessed with Hillary Clinton, who is not a particularly inspiring figure for many other women, myself included, um, and is in fact very much like a neoliberal. You know, she's pretty comfortable with the prison industrial complex. She was happy to take money from bankers, you know, et cetera. Like she wasn't, she was certainly not a radical or progressive. Well, certainly the main criticism of all of these, and I'm thinking, I think especially of Jill Filipovich's book, Uh, It comes down to accepting the status quo, admitting that it needs a little bit of tweaking. But in in her, in Filipovich's book, for example, it comes down to asking for more regulation. Right. And I was honestly, I was surprised by it when I got to that point. And it feels a little rushed kind of at the end of the book where she's suddenly saying, you know, that daycare centers need more regulation and that food needs more regulation. I'm frankly, it's just it's a very strange book to me that that wants to talk about nutrition slash food slash sustenance in a feminist context, but I'm 99.9% sure never mentions Flint, Michigan, which has been without clean drinking water uh, for years now, literally years. This is the community that has no access to clean drinking water. And for her not even to bring that up and to kind of instead talk about how it's you know, bad that women feel like they need to diet. It's just like, almost makes me want to pull my hair out. Where I'm like, I don't, I don't believe you're you're that oblivious. So I don't understand why these connections aren't being made. Maybe where this doesn't seem like something worth talking about. And is that because is that because these bo- books like this grow out of blogs and and social media and you know it's called the H Spot, which is possibly the worst title I've heard in about. <laughs> since the last time I heard a terrible title, which is a lot. Which is quite frequent. Yeah. Uh, but the, you know, it, it just sounds like this is a sort of, it can easily be classed, though, or seem to be classed as sort of an extended Cosmo piece. which, mm, which it's rushed out and it, these, they tend to be slapdash and, and uh, the research doesn't, doesn't support what they want to say. It's, it's, a, it's a running strand throughout these, really. It it is on it is a little like being in some Twilight Zone episode where you're in a doctor's waiting room and you live there for the rest of your life and you have to read this one article that never ends from a woman's <laughs> magazine. It, I genuinely I don't feel like I have the insight maybe to to speak to the motivation of the author or even the publisher, but my suspicion is that it felt like here's something that will sell, not to be completely cynical but it does seem like they thought maybe this will be something easy to sell you know people are interested in being happier you know so it almost passes as like a self-help book a little bit I think when people see happiness in a title and it's very much about just preaching to the converted I mean I suppose the other side of that question is who do they think that they're trying to convince that is my reaction I'm like these are the the softest balls that you could possibly throw that there's just there's no urgency behind them. There's barely even um, any real relevance behind them anymore, where it's just sort of like, how how can this still be something that you think demands all of our time to kind of focus on these really, these things that are almost insipid at this point are, are certainly very well-tread. And both um, Laurie Penny's book and Jill Filipovic's book, and I think actually Camille Paglia's book as well, talk about Naomi Wolf's The Beauty Myth, and there's nothing wrong with having like a 
common text that people return to and cite. And, you know, it's to Naomi Wolf's credit, frankly, that she wrote a book that has remained in people's minds for so long and like so powerfully. But I can't believe like, do we do we need to have these conversations about like, women spending their time on on their makeup and how that's bad for the world or whatever. I mean, it's it feels so incredibly petty. And it does feel to me like it's a bit of the result of an internet participation where you score these easy points and you get a lot of people congratulating you or a lot of people saying like, wow, this is so powerful to me, you know, when you complain about the beauty industry or whatever. And and then the person in question becomes sort of inflated with that sense of having accomplished something, which comes across the most in in Laurie Penny's book, where it feels like she really thinks she's on the front lines of something. And it's Uh, it's utterly baffling for me anyway, to discern from that book what she's actually done. And, And there's no need for her to prove to me that she's like participating in the right ways. But but there is maybe if you're going to keep bragging to the reader about how brave you are and how much of an important figure you are, that you back it up with something. I wanted to say what the title is, because it's the worst title I've heard since the (laughs) H-spot around six minutes ago. It's called Bitch Doctrine, uh, and you call it juvenile grandstanding. Here's a quote that you say. uh, This is Laurie Penny. I'm going to say it slowly and clearly so it doesn't get forgotten quite so fast. Young women today are brilliant. They are brilliant. You did that brilliantly. Thank you. I really, really... Thank you. I really felt that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you, the question you ask that follows in the piece, you say, what can this juvenile grandstanding possibly achieve? Does it win anyone over? And, and that seems to me to be a, a fair point. If you write to try and get retweets, that's very different to writing to try and have a sustained argument at book length. Absolutely. And I, it seems uh, at, at best, the people reading it will feel congratulated. You know, so if I agree with her, maybe I read it and I feel proud of myself. My concern at the moment is to not uh, deepen anyone's complacency, because I feel like, no, we need all hands on deck right now. Like, I don't want to berate anyone, but I do want to encourage them to act in like concrete ways and think about things more deeply and her book just does seem like like there's a, a smugness to it a pervasive smugness that really confuses me as well because there doesn't seem to be anything particularly challenging or radical in the book so I don't understand where that sense of self-satisfaction would come from do you think she um, might accuse you of not quite betraying the, the cause but maybe betraying the cause but actually by, <laughs> by, by you criticising these books you're just making it easy for men, I suppose, but anyone ignorantly to, to, to dismiss the legitimate causes behind feminism, you, you know, you shouldn't criticise people like this. I'm not saying I think that, I don't, I, I, I applaud uh, sensible criticism like this, but could, could you, could, could someone accuse you of that, do you think, Charlotte? I'm sure they, they have and will, yeah. probably will continue to. So. Um, <laughs> what's frustrating to me is that it seems obvious that that is Not that it would necessarily be untrue, but that there's actually some sexism behind that, which is that I have um, a friend who writes a lot of book reviews and and he's a man and he he doesn't hold himself back usually if he doesn't like a book. And I was talking with him about if he feels like he has, you know, enemies or that he's ever really like put his foot in it. And after our conversation, I was just like, you know, I don't think anyone 
would ever call him mean, but me, I'm sure plenty of people have and will call, call me mean, which implies almost like a personal, um, that's exactly right. You know, yeah. Right. Like some type of personal vendetta or whatever. And it's like, no, I, I don't wish these women ill. Like, I just think they wrote bad books that, that people shouldn't spend their time reading. And, it, and in fact, if they are increasing people's sense of complacency or, I don't know, like preoccupying them with something that isn't actually that worthwhile, like I, Dangerous is too strong a word, but I, but I think that the net effect is negative, that, that we just need to step it up. So all of these women whose books are addressed in the essay have large platforms. You know, they have a lot of Twitter followers. They write regularly for big outlets. Particularly, so, particularly perhaps Camille Paglia. I mean, you, you start with, with her and then you move on to her. In some ways, I get a sense of greater disappointment with with her from you because she is an important figure in the way that the other two aren't, I think you'd probably argue. But she is important, but she doesn't really give you any solace either. I, I know, at tremendous risk to myself, I'm just going to say, I really like Camille Paglia. I can't help it. Like, I think her writing is really fun to read. I think she's so ridiculous sometimes that it's just sublime. Like, I, I, I really enjoy it. And she does say these inflammatory things that I think she believes sometimes, and other times I think she is saying just to get under people's skin. I mean, there is this funny uh, tension in the book where she gives an MIT speech, which I cite, where she says that her something like her objective is always to um, create the, the maximum amount of aggravation. And my then mission, later is, my she, mission is to be absolutely as painful as possible in every yes. situation. <laughs> right, which you can tell. There's Nobody could read her and, and miss that aspect of it. But then later, she's doing an interview with somebody, and the woman, which is included in the same book, and the woman asks her, do you feel like you play devil's advocate? And she says something like, what a stupid thing to do. I would never waste my time doing that. <laughs> like, well, but she's, she's a career contrarian. And in, in, in that sense, I suppose she's quite an important antidote to the, the patting on back and mutual exclamation of, oh, right on, that the other writers might be giving each other. Yeah, and at least she really always goes for the grand. She always wants sort of the biggest possible statement you know, because of her own personal history, she's always talking about like the the entire history of art, the entire history of civilization. And there is something refreshing about that after reading books by younger feminists that feel so hemmed in, like the H-Bot or Bitch Doctrine, where it does feel like they kind of have these, they're sort of looking through a microscope at things that don't require looking at through a microscope. Um, just, and- just funny, because we have to go in a second, but we you know we've we've possibly have depressed people by talking for, for 10 minutes about problems in, in feminist writing. Can you end by cheering us up on, by saying who writes well in this area? Who reads you and uh, who, who do you read and, and feel inspired by? Yes, I don't think we need to be depressed. I think that there's there are actually like more exciting feminist conversations happening now than there were probably a year ago. And just because perhaps the mainstream outlets and you know, the biggest publishers are not giving these women book deals or promoting their work. It doesn't mean it isn't there and that you can't track it down. Um, Sarah Jaffe is a journalist who writes a lot about um, economic inequality, labor rights, and her work is genius. And if you if you read her work and you are a feminist, you see how her feminism comes across in everything that she does because she is constantly centering these women who are powering the movements, constantly kind of giving those women the mic. So I always feel inspired um, by her work. And Angela Davis, who I mentioned at the end of the article, is just this kind of like this constant beacon of integrity and intelligence. So there's plenty of 
valuable writing. You might just have to dig a little more to get at it. Um, and, and Naomi Klein, too, I think is somebody who's speaking very intelligently to our circumstance right now. She is the celebrity, but I, when I read her work, I don't feel that she's centering herself. Charlotte, Shane, thank you very much indeed. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A culture critic turned into a cultural institution, an academic with little time for academia, a revealer of mythologies who became himself a myth. With these words, Samuel Earle approaches the busy afterlife of the rock star philosopher Roland Barthes in this week's TLS. Beautifully pronounced. <laughs> Thank you. Barthes, who died in 1980 after being run over by a laundry van, is probably best known for his 1967 essay on the death of the author, in which he argued against the fashion of the time that to give a text an author with all the biological context that comes with that is to impose a limit on the text as well as for a popular series of essays collected in 1957 as Mythologie. There, he took apart the myths of popular culture, from cars, fashion magazines and soap detergents, to Poujadisme, the French populist movement of the 1950s, which purported to defend the common man against faceless elites. So one might reread these essays now with a renewed sense of urgency. In fact, as Samuel Earle makes clear, Barthes never really stopped being relevant. He's one of those high thinkers, and Foucault is probably another, whose name has entered common culture. It might be dropped at dinner parties, especially where French food is being served, and perhaps even on fashion front rows. 
Sam Earl is here in the studio to tell us more now. Hello, Sam. Hiya. Hi. I think one of the most engaging points in your piece, certainly one of the guiding themes in Bart's life and career, is his boredom. There's mm. a, a very clear sense in which boredom was his most defining trait. Yeah, I think for good and for bad. Um, it was almost a, a motivational force in uh, Bart's life was how uh, easily he became bored. And it seemed much more chronic than... Uh, waiting at the train station or kind of uh, reading something he wasn't enjoying. It was really an existential sense that he wanted to be everything that it was possible for him to be. And so he would constantly hop between different fields. Death of the Author and Mythologies are his two most lasting works in a way, and yet they're also two uh, texts that he really distanced himself from why was that? Because I mean, because Death, he, Death and Author is so iconic, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, he became very uh, obsessive about authors' lives and what they were wearing when they were writing books and uh, where they were in life and how, how their personal life affected uh, what they wrote. That kind of became his main object of study when he, he started lecturing. Uh, so, it was so, called, so, he, so he'd have hated the idea of the sort of post-structuralist idea of just focusing on the text. He really was a bundle of contradictions and I think he also thought that uh, no meaning should ever be imposed upon a text absolutely and that was the piece from the death of the author that always stayed with him and yet he still thought that there was something fascinating and and demystifying as well when we learn who an author was uh their process of writing did they keep a diary did they write in their dressing gown uh all these little tidbits of information he found completely completely fascinating which is very, very much the, the sort of bloodless world of theory, with which he's become associated. But I was talking to, to someone in the office, and they said, "Well, Bart's not like Derrida. It's very, it's almost impossible to read Derrida, and there is something utterly soulless about the theories that come come from him." Is Bart, do you think, slightly more human? There's a sort of slightly more bl- blood pulsing he's, when when, he, when he's writing. He was certainly much more playful every day than Derrida. Bart says something on theory, which is that. Even theory is a kind of fiction. It's a story you impose upon the world. And I think Bart, uh, he always resisted those systems that Derrida had and preferred to observe them, play with them, take a bit from one, take a bit from another. And there was something that made that very exciting and accessible. And I think that's how he ended up inspiring so many other writers. And there's a sense, obviously, in which his constant flitting from from one thing to the next is is what accounts for his his enduring appeal as well. Mm. I mean, he's he's written on photography and he's written yeah. on um, language. So and, every yeah. everything that you might go on to study at university or discuss at any level, yeah. he'll he'll have commented on. He'll mm. have offered his take. And on. I, so that is another interesting kind of aspect of his legacy is that most equivalents to Bart are known for a grand theory or kind of uh, uh, consistency in in their in in what they've kind of put out into the world whereas he he really would pick up one thread and then and leave it very quickly and that would be his his lasting contribution you could always make the argument this in some ways it's surprising that he's he's lasted as long because mm. you, you someone like levi strauss where, where there's there is a relatively clear you know what you're talking about when you talk about him and, and, and his work but because of that flitting of of bald Maybe he's not. I mean, when people, when you, if you said so, an educated person, Roland Barthes, what do you think? Do you think they'd say death? Would they just say death of an author? What else would they say? I think, yeah, I think they'd say death. Fashion system, maybe? Yeah. Fashion. That's quite, that's quite, yeah. Quite yeah. Semiotics, I suppose, a bit of that. Yeah, yeah. 
And I, I mean, mythologies, I think, has had the uh, widest resonance. Because I think it's something that is, or it was such a uh, unique experiment in, in reading society. Can and you explain a bit about that? Because I'm, I'm interested yeah, in Yeah, sure. So mythologies was Bart's idea that you could take random fragments of society. It could be uh, wrestling, uh, a dishwasher label, uh, a dishwashing detergent label. And it, if you studied that uh, very kind of perceptively, you could explore the moral code of society or the agenda of, of society. And that is something that after Bart is still kind of a, a very like valuable exercise today. It's even last year, a new version of Mythologies was published called Mythomania yes. by Peter Conrad. Yeah, um, yeah. We had a review. Neil Babington uh, reviewed it, I think, for us. Yeah, who was one of the authors that uh, whose book I reviewed here. And he was trying to encourage us about things like King Kardashian's bottom and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, and like the can... shards. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's 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 a task that still has a place today. I think it might have become harder because maybe the myths that Bath was trying to demystify have. He failed in his mission, and they have become even more omnipresent and, and hardened. Brett, is he the father of brands? I mean, is that is that is that what we're talking about here? There's that that sort of semiotics. Well, where... he sort of became that in in a way, didn't he? Because whenever something cultural would happen, it, people would come to him as as the go-to critic to kind of unveil the myth behind this this happening or, or this brand or, or whatever, and he he reacted against that and sort mm. of oh, thought that his he, his... he didn't embrace that. He did it? not He did not embrace that. And then he sort of retreated into more of a concern with kind of the the, the individual kind of heart of, 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 of the art, of, mm. of the work of art. Is he still big in France? I mean, is, is he one of the... Because yeah, Fra- really, France loves his thinkers still, doesn't it? Uh, I'd say he's potentially the second uh, kind of biggest thinker after Sartre of, of that of that generation at least uh, and what meaning does even, he and what meaning does he have in I mean I suppose they've got a philosopher president now haven't they so uh, yeah. I well uh, funny you say that actually they're a, a kind of a, a good example of, of Bart's legacy is that after Macron was elected uh, even the Financial Times I don't know if you guys saw this they did a uh, kind of semiotic reading of his portrait where they picked apart all the little details in in uh, the photo the book that was on the desk open it was like Charles de Gaulle's that? war memoir memoirs <laughs> uh, the fact Macron had two iPhones behind him he was he's part of the tech generation and, the, and that was very redolent of Bart in your yeah view. yeah yeah very much so he, he he loved honing in on one photo uh, one consumer product and analyzing everything about it well, and in fact, homing in on on that kind of that personal um, within it, it sort of brings us to his final book, which was Camera Lucida, mm. um, which shows just the kind of the trajectory that his career did take, as you said, because he sort of flitted from one thing to the next. Everything that he said, he then went on to contradict. Mm. And so then we end with this book about his mother, ostensibly, yeah. and photography and the very personal readings of photography that... That, that he enacts on every page and yeah completely and again so far away from uh semiotics and and uh signs and symbols it was some people call it his his novel even though mm. it wasn't quite a novel but it was uh very personal very original and that is the singularity of style that maybe kind of runs throughout his his career but a lot of people read it and were uh just so surprised that this was his his latest book 
Because ha- I presume it carries with it a sense of both personality and intent, which is, of course, the one thing that one is supposed to take from Death of the Author we shouldn't ever be interested in. Mm. Mm. Precisely. Well, you had this idea of the studium and the punctum, so you could read a, foot, uh, a photo on two simultaneous levels. So the studium was the kind of the, the sort of detached look of someone who's who's studying it as as the name implies and and sort of commenting on the layout and and whatever it might mean and then there's the punctum which is the wound the kind of the emotional woundingness of it and so for him is all brought to bear on this photograph that he discovers of his of his mother who had died can't remember not that long before Couple, it was two, written i think two years yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. and then he died two months after mm. this was published where did you study about there was at it, university is it considered a, is it because when i think I, I was doing english and and actually where i was doing it that sort of theory was kind of pushed to one side you did a bit of reader response theory and you did a bit of post-structuralism but you're kind of encouraged to say well that's that's over there it's mm. not considered integral to understanding literature was it considered more Central where you were. I think I came across um, that in almost everything that I did because mm. I did English and French, yeah. and I found him more than anyone because of this flitting nature of 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 his his work. I suppose I could find something in it for everything. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, for that reason, he was he was very important. He was the first, probably the first theorist I got very excited about because I didn't really think of him as a theorist yeah. so much as just a you know, a, a critic or a mm. revealer of something or uh, talking about Camera Lucida, yes, and kind of a novelistic, beautiful writer who made me, you know, see things or feel things or whatever. Where did you come across him? Where? I came across him through mythologies. Uh, would he have been fun to have lunch with? I mean, because you often <laughs> get these theories, like, uh, you wouldn't, you know, lots of these, well, like, Sartre's a good example, Derrida, you, you, you don't, yeah. oh, God, I could. You don't want to get stuck in a lift with them. I think he was... He was very. He, he was. He was also genuinely a very bored person. So he would have been hard to uh, to kind of keep his attention. And yeah. that is where uh, Solas, uh, his his best friend, and whose book I review in this in this piece, comes into it. He was one of the few figures who could actually sustain his attention over a long period of time. So he'd hate being stuck in a lift. Yeah, it, it's more that he'd hate being with me than We should try and come up with which are the major literary uh, and, and thinking figures from Hast who you'd most and least like to be stuck in stuck in a lift with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but Bart would be, he would he would have struggled with that. And and to explain what Soler's book's doing. So Soler's book is it was uh, uh, released on the centenary of of Bart's birth in 2015, and it was only just recently translated. And uh, it's partly old work, old uh, work from Solers on Bart, but now uh, he's also written like an updated piece reflecting on their friendship and how important for both of them their 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 friendship was. Is it charming? I mean, did you very you, very charming? He's very he's very protective of Bart. He tells a funny story, a very French story, where his wife. Uh, Julia Kristeva, yeah. who's a famous... Uh, another, psych- another unreadable theorist, <laughs> Yeah, in my experience. Go on. <laughs> She's being awarded a prize by Sarkozy. Sarkozy says, oh, and she knew uh, Roland Barthes and Soler. <laughs> and he says, people laughed, but in that moment I knew that French society had gone to ruin and we needed to start everything over from scratch. Uh, <laughs> Bart has been, of course, a goalkeeper. Yeah. A French, yeah. A French goalkeeper, which I'm sure you... you it's a you, whole yeah. other level to the joke. That is, that is a peculiarly French story, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I've got to be honest, I feel, after this conversation, I feel sort of slightly inspired to go and read some. Okay, more. well, I mean, so 
well, yeah. this is probably the sort of question that you'll only get on the TLS podcast. What would you say your favourite, if you were going to recommend to Stig? Yes. Uh, who's very sneery about who's theory. Very sneery about <laughs> sneery <laughs> about theory. <laughs> the one that, that always still makes me the most excited is mythologies. And yet I would also say that Camera Lucida, Lucida is where you go for his most beautiful writing. It's got a vulnerability to it that gives it kind of a special, special edge. Well, listen, thank you so much for, for doing this piece and coming in, and, and I feel excited. <laughs> I know I sound sarcastic when I say something genuine, but I genuinely do. No, well, no, but I can see your face. We can see your yeah, face. Yeah, exactly. Our listeners can't. <laughs> I can, I can endorse his enthusiasm. OK, lovely. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Charlotte Shane and to Samuel Earle. Do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the TLS, which has a French feel to it elsewhere, including a profile of the lovely Montaigne. We also, rather thrillingly, have an extract from Armistead Mopin. Mopin? Mopin. Mopin. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how French he I goes. I don't know how, yeah. Armistead Mopin. We can ask him ourselves we can, sometime. We're going to try and get him on at some point to ask him. Anyway, Armistead Mopin's memoirs, please do pick up a copy if you can. Next week, we're going to expand the European theme further away from France with essays on Freud, Habermas and more. Until then, from Thea and from me, Auf Wiedersehen. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.